months. Ben found the apartment, signed the lease, and hired the moving van. Shelby finally agreed to live with him because she's fairly certain she's a victim of space and location and time, and all she needs is to get out of town in order to escape her past. But it isn't working out that way. She's still spooked in Manhattan. She has an eye for tragedy and sorrow. Show her a rose, and she'll see only the wasp in the center of the bloom. On the city streets, she finds herself haunted by the smallest thing, a child with a purple bruise on his cheek peering up at her from a stroller, an old woman with papery thin skin and a huge, ill-fitting coat who cannot go forward without a walker, a cat in an alley with one torn-off ear. Does no one else see all this pain floating around Manhattan? Shelby sits on the bed in their new apartment, and she's just as haunted as she'd been when she was living in her parents' basement. She takes Ativan morning, noon, and night. When Ben gets home from pharmaceutical school up on 125th Street, she pretends nothing's wrong. She's a Stepford wife, and they're not even married. They smoke dope and order Chinese food delivered, and Ben talks about his day and Shelby doesn't listen. It's all fine as long as Shelby doesn't look into the eyes of the delivery man from the Hunan kitchen, who always seems in the grip of some great and quiet sorrow, no matter how much of a tip she gives him. She takes the fortune cookies from the bottom of the bag and throws them into a glass bowl she keeps in the closet. She has no desire to know what her future might hold. Who made it your job to feel guilty for every bad thing that happens? Ben says fondly, when she begins a litany of the awful things she's seen in a single day. A man with no shoes, a girl crying as her father drags her along 14th Street, a woman begging people for help in a language no one can understand. They both know Shelby wouldn't have looked at Ben twice in high school, but she wonders why he doesn't flee from her. He thinks she's beautiful, which convinces her that he has not only lousy vision, but terrible judgment as well. Shelby still shaves her head, and she only wears black. She's so skinny her veins are luminous under her skin, like the old ladies on the street with their walkers and their plastic bags filled with belongings and trash. Ben, on the other hand, has begun to care about his appearance. He wants to look professional. He bought five white shirts that will need ironing. As for Shelby, she has never used an iron, and she hopes to keep it that way. Tonight, as they sit on their fire escape, they're stoned enough not to care about the heat. It's 99 degrees, hotter than the human body. The sky is falling, and the evening is wet and thick. It's the kind of humid night when people shoot each other for no good reason. Shelby has wrapped herself in a damp sheet. The desire for an air-conditioned environment has recently led her to apply for and then surprisingly get a job at a pet store in Union Square. It's disgusting, boring work, cleaning out cages and unpacking boxes of dog food. But fortunately, the store is ice cold. It's Shelby's first job ever, if she doesn't count babysitting in high school. She still can't believe people actually trusted her with their children. Helene used to come over and sneak out before the parents came home. That is her entire occupational experience other than living off her parents and mooching off Ben Mink. Her parents think the job is some kind of breakthrough, which is just pitiful. Her mother went so far as to send her a greeting card. 
Congratulations, we're so proud of you. There was an illustration of a little girl wearing a crown on the card, holding a magic wand and standing on tiptoe as if she were a good little fairy. Shelby can't bear to look at it. She wishes it had been another postcard from her anonymous correspondent. She's come to depend on those well wishes and their strange and beautiful artwork. She crams the card from her mother into the old jewelry box she has, where she keeps the postcards. Shelby had thought distance from her hometown would make a difference, but she still feels she's responsible for everything bad that has ever happened in the world. She has bad karma. Unfortunately, she's fairly certain that bad karma is something you're born with and can't ever change. I wonder how it feels to cure someone, Shelby muses as they have their fire escape dinner. Do you feel like a magician or like a god when you save someone?